the book I have chosen, I found out only after I finished, is actually a sequel. <laughs> Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm here today with Fiona, Mark, and Sadie. Now, today, because you know that we like to argue, <laughs> debate, debate is a better word than argue. Um, we like to debate here. So today we have chosen a book so that we can basically debate the award-winning quality of this book, particularly compared to who actually won the award, because we today did not read an award winner. We read an award loser. <laughs> Is that what we call it? The ones who didn't actually get that award, but were shortlisted. So we decided to read a book from like a shortlist or from like other nominees, but we think that it deserved the award instead of what actually won the award. So I'm very curious to know what type of awards my book friends have chosen and what books they are going to choose and what books are they going to argue that is better than the other book that actually won the award. So let's jump right into it. We are going to go over to Fiona. Fiona, which award did you choose? So I went with the Audio Awards, which are audiobook awards. And there are all sorts of uh, different categories for the Audis. And they are about recognizing distinctions in audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. So, you know, not just audiobooks, but also like productions. So some of them are like audio plays, I guess. And there are so many different categories in this. So the one that I read was nominated for the fiction category. Uh, and the actual winner was Mad Honey by Jodi Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan. One of the things I love about awards is, you know, unless you're on the committee, you probably haven't read all of the potentials. <laughs> so I'd love to have like strong feelings about one book when I've only read one book. So that is what I will be doing here today. But I also did a funny that I wish Kareen was here to appreciate in that the book I have chosen, I found out only after I finished is actually a sequel. <laughs> so it was up for the fiction category of the audience and I really enjoyed it and had no idea that it was a sequel. So I feel like that is some praise if it can stand on its own. I read Less is Lost by Andrew Sean Greer. When there's awards for audiobooks, it's not about the written content so much as it is about the production, which is like, you know, kind of a fun uh, take on them. So <laughs> this was an excellent and hilarious book. It is about Arthur Less a minor novelist and he is sort of having like a weird boom in his writing career that he doesn't know where it's coming from he's actually been asked to be on a prize committee which is quite funny given our topic it's kind of all about how dysfunctional prize committees are <laughs> he's also been asked to to write a bio for the famous hhh mandarin who is this enigmatic sci-fi writer and this all seems to be coming at a good time because his ex, who is a great poet, has recently passed away. And it turns out that the home that Arthur 
thought he owned, which is lovingly called the shack that came from this ex, he actually owes back rent on it for 10 years. So he needs to make a lot of money fast. And this kind of launches him on this cross America road trip, just filled with hilarious foibles. And it is narrated by his delightful partner, Freddie, who kind of has this all seeing view of Arthur's life, despite the fact that Arthur is actually trying to finish all of this so that he can get to Freddie in Maine and they can be reunited. I am sure there are lots of references to Kerouac. It very much has that like literary referential to it, but I've never read Kerouac. But as a road trip novel, I definitely get that feeling. And there's all sorts of satire in it. It's very funny. To me, it felt like reading like an Ann Patchett satire. <laughs> this sort of awareness of like how weird life is. Unless it's this sort of like just sad character who things happen to and he is always along for the ride. I read some reviews that are very hard on Les but I identified it with him very much so I quite enjoyed his sort of character of like what is going on life is just happening and I am in the driver's seat but I don't feel like I'm driving. He has all of these funny adventures along the way with in this RV that for some reason we know used to be owned by an optometrist and now it's fallen into Les's hand and it came with delightful Pug, who is his co-driver and he stops in bars all along the American South and is deeply afraid of being outed along those. So he grows a handlebar mustache and, and puts on a cowboy hat and, you know, finds that people still seem to notice that he has a, um, what is it, a Finnish accent. Are you from Europe? Which he realizes just means that they are recognizing that he's gay. So it's sort of this just little, these little adventures of Les along this road trip, trying to figure out how to live his life and chasing the ghost of his father, who was the sort of like pyramid scheming man with this big personality who left when when Les was a child because he was always on to the next thing uh, and actually ended up he was... Um, wanted, <laughs> a wanted criminal. And so he left Les and Les's mom's life on that. And then Les gets these messages from him sort of being like, I'm going to find you along the trip. And Les is like looking for him everywhere that he goes. Because in this journey, he also ends up hooking up with this theater troupe that is doing a full production of one of his short stories. And so he rides along with them part of them. They're this theater troupe who who do literary works in their entirety <laughs> through song and dance. So it's just, I don't know, it's just this delightful romp of these crazy things that happen that you can really feel are pulled from real life. And it's just poking fun at the like, you know, the world's a crazy place. America is a crazy place. <laughs> So I feel like this has a wide range, even as a second book. I'm definitely going to pick up the first one, which is just called Less. But I don't think it's a bad idea to just pick up Less is Lost. Um, and especially if you are one of those people who likes really like literary, like Ann Patchett, like because it, it hit all of those buttons for me, but was just a funny take on it. And the audio production is excellent. It works really well for that because it's just this sort of ridiculous tale that we're hearing through Freddie's point of view. Yeah, it's quite well done in terms of an audio. I will say there was a lot of, I guess, 
characterizations that I was not super comfortable with, especially in terms of ethnic characterizations. But I think that could make the argument that he does every character in that way. So in the like farcical, satirical aspect, everyone was getting the same treatment of sort of ridiculousness in this in this world of satire. And oh my goodness, I absolutely need to acknowledge the audiobook reader in that, narrated by Robert Petkoff and written by Andrew Sean Greer. So um, definitely recommend specifically picking up the audio version of that. Thank you so much, Fiona. I think we can all identify with the like, life is just happening to us. What's going on? I have no control over this, even though they say I do. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And of course, you're going to pick an audiobook award. That seems right up to your alley. Perfect. All right. So I have been wanting, wanting, wanting to talk about this book like forever and ever. But I saved for this episode because the reason why I picked the book up in the first place was because it was shortlisted for the award that I want to talk about. So I thought it was like perfect for this. I bought the ebook when I saw it on the shortlist. I read it. I loved it. Then I bought the print book just because I wanted it on my bookshelf. And then for this episode, I went and borrowed the audiobook so that I can read it again, but ended up reading my ebook instead one more time just because I'm better at reading print than audio. So yeah, I love this book if you haven't gathered that already. And I wanted to win all the awards in the world, including the Booker Prize in 2022. So the Booker Prize is a literary prize awarded for the best novel written in English that is published in the UK and Ireland. And of course, there's the Counterpart International Booker Prize, which is awarded to a novel that is translated into English that was published in the UK or Ireland. And I say that because um, I think it was Mark who pointed out one time when he was talking about, I think, I think it was after Savile that you were talking about, how like a lot of books be- that will get the Booker Prize nominations and then we won't get access to it because it's only published like in UK. And so they don't have a North American release very often until way after. So that is the case for for a lot of them, but they are definitely worth checking out. When the shortlist came out in 2022, the only book that I read at that point was Glory by Novaila Bulawayo. And you all know how much I love that book. It was one of my top five books of the year. So I was rooting for that. And then of course I read this book and I'm like, oh no, this is even better or equally better and I was rooting for both of them to the point that where I I actually watched the live stream of the award ceremony which I never thought I would do but just for whatever reason I just care so deeply that year about it well neither book one the book that won was The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by uh, Shihan Kurunatiklaka which let me just say despite the topic, despite our topic for today, I think it's a really well-deserved winner. I enjoyed that book immensely. I love it. Not just because I have a soft spot for like Sri Lankan stories, but I think it was just so creative. It was so engrossing. It was magic realism. It was genre bending. It was set in the afterlife that has a protagonist that is dead. Like it was just perfect. Um, So I love that book also. So I totally don't debate the win. I think it's the right choice. But I think sometimes when you have books that happen to land at the right time, and I think this is what happened when I read this book, because I think it just made a, a more emotional and in, like you know impact on me for whatever reason. So I was really, really hoping that this would win. But doesn't matter. They're all great books. Um, So, you know, I would love, love for everybody to check out The Trees by Percival Everett. I talked about Everett before on the episode where we read a book that 
is in a genre that we don't usually read. And I read one of his Western, his one of his earlier novels, and that was also great. The Trees is set in Money, Mississippi, and Deputy Sheriff Delroy Digby is being sent to answer a 911 call, and it brought him to the house of Daisy, his uh, high school ex-girlfriend. And Daisy was sobbing. Daisy was hysterical. Daisy was screaming because she and the kids came home and found her husband dead. Deputy Sheriff tried to go in the back room to check it out. And sure enough, Junior Junior is very, very dead. It's blood everywhere. It looks like he was brutally murdered. The body was mutilated. It was just a very, very bad scene. And, and he feels really bad that Daisy has to see all of this. But Junior Junior is not the only dead person in the room. There is across from him another dead body, a body of a black man who looks, if there's such a thing, even more dead than Junior Junior. And he has something in his hand, bloody, that may or may not belong to Junior Junior. That is something that they haven't figured out yet. But it was just an awful, awful crime scene. So he called back up, he called the coroner, and they all came and do their police things. And when they went back to the station to report to the sheriff to explain sort of what they saw, they just couldn't make sense out of it. Like, what happened there? Like, did they kill one another? Did somebody else kill them both? Like, they just couldn't make sense of what's going on. They couldn't even begin to guess because of where all the bodies are found. And it just doesn't make sense. They were just trying to figure this out when they got a phone call from the coroner. And the coroner said, you have to come right now to the morgue. And they did. And when they got there, the coroner was like, this, here, this is where I put the body of the dead black guy. And the body is gone. The body has disappeared. And we were here the whole time. So there's no way, we know that nobody came in. So we don't know where the body went. And so the sheriff was like, well, don't you have a back door? Maybe they came in from the back door and stole the body. No, the back door has been jammed shut the whole for like years. We keep telling them it's a fire hazard, but they won't fix it. So yeah, no way they could have gone from the back. But when the sheriff and the deputies went and check it out, sure enough, the back door is wide open. But it's weird because there doesn't seem to be any sign that someone has like forced it to open. Give it has been jammed shut. Then like you can just be able to see that someone is trying to get it open. But there was like no damage to the door. Not only that, the dust that has been like accumulated on the door, it's all like intact. Like there is just no prints at all. So it's very, very strange. Eventually, the murder, the missing body, the story got out to the local news and then other like news sources pick up the story. And sooner or later, the whole country knows that Money, Mississippi, the police department lost a dead body. And of course, that's super embarrassing for the department. And not only that, the MBI, the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, figured that this little town needs help. So let me send in some of my officers to help you. So now they are stuck with these two officers from the MBI to come and help them. And they're like, no, we don't need help. Murder is a local matter. But they're like, no, we're here to try to figure out the case of the missing body. And so the sheriff hated it that they have to deal with these people. But not only that, the two officers that came from Mississippi are Black. 
And did I mention that money, Mississippi, is kind of stuck in the past? Like their attitudes, their world wheels haven't changed for hundreds of years. So they are not very comfortable. In fact, they really do not like the fact that they have been sent to black police officers to come help them. So they try to brush them off. They're like, well, we just got a call. We have another thing going on. So yeah, why don't you go like get some coffee? We'll get back to you later. So the two officers thought, okay, well, I guess we'll just go to the diner and wait for the sheriff to call. And when the sheriff called, he said, guess what? We don't need your help anymore. We found the dead body. So you found the missing dead body. Yes. Where? Well, we went to answer this other call and this other murder scene. And there was another very similar murder, another body like that looks very messy. And on the same crime scene is the dead guy. Like the same dead guy? Yup, the same dead black man. We found him again. And don't worry, we checked this time, even though he looked very dead last time. We didn't check his pulse, but we did this time. He is absolutely dead. Okay, so what? Like the guy was not really dead. He got up and just walked out of the morgue and now he got himself killed again? Like, what are you talking about? And that's what they have to kind of figure out. And I'm just going to stop here because I don't want to spoil anything else. And I also would like to suggest if you were to go to read this book, and I really hope you do, uh, don't read too much about the premise of the book or what this book is about, especially if you're a reader who are okay with reading about most things, because I think it's such a bad reading experience if you don't know the subject matter just yet. But I can assure you that you will be in good hands. What started off as kind of like a, a bit of a mystery, there's a, some police procedural, maybe a little bit of supernatural going on, maybe that guy just walk up kind of thing. And Everett is so good at taking just the darkest, darkest part of history and not only talking about it with such wit, but with such dry and deadpan humor. And it's unbelievable when you think about why a book about a topic like this, about like really, really awful things that happen in history could be funny. And it's the kind of humor that like you're laughing, you're chuckling along and you're like, oh, should I be laughing at that? You know, it's that type of humor. And it's just phenomenal what he does. I also love Everett's dialogue. He is so good. It is so sharp and it hits the target every time. And just like the rest of his writing, it's always very straightforward. It's like that's just a punch. And he doesn't need flowery imagery. He doesn't need fancy words. But you can see the craft that he has in making every single sentence just perfect with the perfect word choices. And like I said, because of like kind of almost like a genre mashed up, I, I love that play with the genre conventions. And a little bit like uh, Fiona was talking about, all the characters are in here are like caricatures. They are like super exaggerated. They are completely ridiculous. And, and everybody is just having so much fun with all of them to make use of conventions, those tropes, you know, those stock characters to kind of like look at the past. And, and, and Everett has a lot of things to say about the past in this book, but it never takes over from the wonder of the story. It is just so much fun to read. I will end with a quote from his interview. He said that there is no better way to address serious stuff, especially with Americans, than if you can get them laughing. Then you can do 
things to them and substitute things with another more colorful word. So yeah, I think that's exactly what he does. And he does so well. So if I can pull myself away from rereading trees again, I should really go dive into his backlist, which there's 30 plus books. So I'm going to say thank you to the Booker Award Committee for introducing me to Percival Everett. I am definitely going to be paying attention to not just his books, but also to the award from now on. Um, so thank you for that. And yeah, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I think I read the book the year after it was published. I think if I read it in the same year, I would probably have put it as one of my top books because it was so good. So this is The Trees by Percival Everett. All right. So we will go to our question for the day, which is, do you follow specific awards? Are there specific awards that you pay more attention to? Or are there awards that you find like you always agree more with? I'm not a big awards follower or really anything follower. <laughs> um, but I do have opinions. <laughs> and I think when I do follow awards, I usually get really into them. That's it. It's all or nothing. Like it's the same thing with like sports or anything. You know, every once in a while, I just get really into the World Cup. Every once in a while, you read a book, you realize it's up for a nomination and it's the right timing. And like you said, like watching that stream, like you just, you get into it. Um, and, and I always really appreciate awards when I'm in that mode, because I think it's really, you know, about the journey and not about the destination. It's about all of that. You know, it's not about what who wins. It's about the exposure that they're all getting. That's something that I really like about Canada Reads. And so that's why I think it's good to be invested in them. Like you either have to be like, yes, I'm going to follow this. I'm going to hear everything, have strong opinions, or else like, I'm just going to look up the list two years later and like, you know, use it for a very specific purpose. Yeah. I also would probably say that I don't follow words a ton. But if there's a book that I'm interested in and I hear it got nominated for a particular kind of award, then that will definitely be like, okay, I definitely do want to read this book then. So like hearing about awards definitely does have like some influence over what I choose to read or my level of interest in something. But I don't often check back like, oh yeah, it's March now. It's going to be like the whatever awards are going to be not like the long list and the next one's going to be the short list. Like I don't really follow it in that kind of close way, but it definitely does have some influence over the, my decisions. I don't at all. I struggle when people tell me what I should read based on a set of guidelines that they have decided is what makes a book that I should read. Even like with books that are on Oprah's list, people will come up to me and say, oh, it's on Oprah's list. And I will actually actively avoid it in a lot of times because I I just don't, I don't uh, think that's that my views necessarily align with what makes a good book for other people. So I, I don't tend to follow awards all that much. Uh, occasionally, if I have read a book that I really, really like and I hear that it has won an award, I'll kind of have like a little, yay, I agree. But uh, but I don't I don't tend to follow awards. And that and that goes for pretty much at, like all types of media. The only awards that I've ever really liked watching were the Tony Awards. And I think that's just because there's so many fun performances and why would you not want to watch Broadway in your house if you if you can um, but yeah book awards I don't tend to I, I they're not anything that kind of weighs heavily maybe it's because the type of books that I, I tend to read don't often get nominated for a lot of literary awards but yeah I find that I just don't put a lot of weight onto awards that's fair oh like you say fair enough right Sadie <laughs> fair enough 
it's weird because like I think I I didn't think I care, but apparently I care. Like I think it's like a little bit like Fiona said, like you know sometimes it's just you get into it and then, like I really really care about it. I think for me, a lot of the like you know the science fiction fantasy horror award that I follow and I do watch those ceremonies. It's just really sad. But I only follow them, I think, it's because so I can be like, ew, why? Why that book? You know, why not the book that I read? Like, I think that's more for that because I always find them, like, I think you're right. Like, they always pick things that are like, why? Why that one? Like, you know, and so I'm just like, I'm just there to like, to argue with with the TV or with the computer and yell at it for no reason. That's really what it is. I think, and like what everybody said, it's interesting to see the shortlist just so that you can be like, oh, I never heard of that before. Like, what is that all about? So it's more like it got me interested in reading it. Maybe it's like brought some books to my attention that I didn't know that they exist or haven't really paid much attention to it. So it's more like that, just raising the awareness. But then I do end up liking most of them especially i think maybe the only award that i generally tend to agree with is the prince award i feel like they pick good stuff not the newberry i don't understand the newberry i never understood the newberry i don't get it but the prince tends to pick good choices at least according to me so anyway um yeah so thank you everyone for giving your opinions on awards so let's get back to other award nominees. We're going to go to Mark. So the book I'll be talking about is The Tatami Galaxy by Tomihiko Morimi and translated by Emily Ballastieri. Now, this book was nominated for the 2023 Pen Translation Prize, which is an annual award for book-length prose from any language into English. And the book that ended up winning was Tiffany Zhao's translation of Buddhi Dharma's People from Bloomington, which I did read, and it was a good book. And I would say that the translation of that book was done very well. It very much felt like it was written originally in English. Like, she did a fantastic job of the translation. I guess I just feel like in this case, with this particular book, Tatsumi Galaxy, I have a much deeper connection to it for various reasons. So in that way, I sort of was rooting for that book very much to win, especially since this author has been around for a number of years in Japan and has only recently started to get translated into English. So I definitely was hoping that they could get a little bit more exposure for that reason. In North America, Morimi's probably become much more known and has these translations started to happen because of the many anime adaptations of his works, including Tatami Galaxy, Night is Short, Walk On Girl, Penguin Highway, and The Eccentric Family. These stories often combine sort of everyday and sort of even like mundane kind of places in modern day Japan, but it's filled with eccentric characters and elements of science fiction and or Japanese folklore. His stories also take place in the city of Kyoto very often, which is where Morimi went to university. And his fans often pour over his books, trying to find like the real life locations of his book, that of the things that take place in his books. And there's very much this kind of like connection to the places that he writes about that people very much connect to. He also recently wrote a sequel to this book called Tatami Time Machine Blues, and it's going to be released in the next year or so, I think, also by Harper Collins, who did the, the release for this book. So it's nice to see that it's getting more attention in that way. And also in Balestieri's translation, there's a special afterward where she reveals her deep love for Morimi's writing and that this is like a very strong passion for his writing and when she was living in Japan and find, discovering his writing and wanting to bring it out into English. So she very much has like a strong um, connection to his work and it very much shows through in her loving translation into English. So in this book, The Tatsumi Galaxy, we're introduced to a nameless sort of semi-generic male college student. He's a junior at Kyoto University 
and has led an unhappy first two years at this university. And he's now fully disillusioned by the notion of finding a good, prosperous social and academic life on campus. He initially believed that he would be able to find for himself the perfect club to join, a nice girlfriend, he'd get good grades, and all the great things that would create, in his words, a rose-colored campus life. But as it has turned out, though, he's had a horrid time on campus and in his student life. He hates the student society that he joined, the Ablutions Film Club. He's had virtually zero romantic success, and his grades have begun to slide lower and lower after mishap after mishap, and he's sort of fallen into a slump. Gradually becoming more like this general dissatisfaction with his life, has this lone remaining friend, Ozu, a fellow ask outcast from the Ablutions Film Club. And Ozu is a rather devious and kind of mischievous type who's always pushing the protagonist into becoming actively antisocial, sort of even convincing him to like try and ruin other people's night at a romantic festival. He sort of even refers to Do Ozu as being kind of like a devious kind of yokai, or sort of like a traditional monster in Japanese mythology. And that he has this kind of like very strange demeanor and appearance that eight out of 10 people who pass him by on the street would mistake him for a yokai. And the other two, of course, would just be shape-shifting yokai in human form who recognize him as a fellow traveler. Having sunk to the level, the protagonist kind of laments how Ozu has dragged him down further and further. And if only he had chosen a different society to join on his first day of university, one more suited to him, worth more amenable clubmates, then surely his life would have turned out differently. Protagonist does have some other friends on campus besides Ozu, but this is definitely like his main friendship that he doesn't really have much of a strong connection to other people other than another girl in the Ablutions film club, Akashi, whom he may or may not want to share a romantic life with. He's not really sure of how his feelings are for her. He's kind of fumbling through his life at this point with an inability to determine how he feels about her or how to initiate like some sort of like deeper relationship with someone. But at this point, he sort of like reached the height of dissatisfaction. He's, he feels like if he had just made a different choice on that first day of university underneath the clock tower, if he had chosen a different option that was available to him, then things would have turned out differently for him. And at this point, so it reaches the end of the first chapter, and the book suddenly rewinds back to the very beginning of the narrative on the first day of university, with the protagonist regaling about how he's wasted the past years of his college life, and that if only he had joined a different club, it would have turned out differently. But as this narrative sort of reveals, he hasn't joined the Ablutions Film Club. This time he's actually become the disciple of an unknown master after answering a shady flyer calling out for the opportunity to become a disciple. It sort of becomes clear that like in this retelling now, he's actually living in a different timeline or a different series of events are taking place. And that's kind of like how this story kind of goes. Like in each of the subsequent chapters, we return to the first day of his college life and he chooses a slightly different path on that first day and that how we see his life gets altered based on that decision. In each of these alternate timelines, the protagonist encounters many of the same people, issues and personal stumbling blocks along the way. Most notably, Ozu always takes on the role of a kind of malevolent meddler, or as he puts it, butting into other people's lives. It's his love language, so he can't help but clamp onto the protagonist's life. And also, of course, like Akashi, the potential love interest and friend of the protagonist, in her own way inspires him and pushes him toward taking a more firm or definitive actions in each of these different timelines. And even though he encounters many of the same people, the same events, the same things from slightly different angles, there's still unique twists along the way in each timeline, such as in one, he becomes pen pals with a woman discussing mundane matters to their shared love of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or the escapades of plotting to kidnap a love doll as part of Master Higuchi's proxy-proxy war of Jogasaki, head of the Ablutions Film Club, 
in which they train back and forth jokes and interferences in their lives as part of a generations-long battle between university rivals that's passed down to set the disciples every five years as this kind of like long-lasting dispute between two students comes passed on to a sort of proxy, quote-unquote, into the next generations of students who continue on this long-lasting feud, even though no one can actually remember how this feud started to begin with. In each of these timelines, he also encounters a mysterious fortune teller that every time delivers a semi-cryptic fortune to the protagonist. That chance for happiness and success is already dangling just before his eyes. He simply needs to reach out and grasp it. Puzzled by this fortune, he asks for and receives one additional clue from the woman, Colosio, that this word, thing, idea, or whatever it's supposed to mean, is a key to unlocking his chance and deliver him to what he's actually looking for. But what this chance is, or if it's related to what he's been searching for this whole time, a rose-colored campus life, quote-unquote. He doesn't know. It's interesting to see in each subsequent variation of his campus life the similarities, differences, and crisscrossing of people and events in different combinations and different perspectives, creating a kind of kaleidoscopic view of his university and the people who go there. Uh, while it's been pointed out by some that the events may be a bit too repetitive or similar in each timeline for some readers' tastes, and that they think the narrative would have been better served by having radically different outcomes and experiences, meeting completely different people and things like that. For example, there are some pages, such as his description of his dilapidated housing complex, that are actually repeated verbatim in each of these timelines. Since this aspect of his life remained constant in each timeline, he thus expresses the same feelings about his horrid housing situation in each chapter, or the fact that he uses certain phrases, like when the protagonist is frustrated by something, he frequently describes himself as being steaming like a piping hot fish burger. I still think it's kind of illuminating the way that reveals that regardless of which choices we make, that if we have a certain perspective or ideal, like something vague and very high level, like a rose-colored campus life, quote-unquote, that our feelings of dissatisfaction are going to be like almost inevitable because we're striving after these sort of unobtainable ideals, that if we are driven by a kind of like perfective idea that, that there's no way to actually fulfill it, and that's going to push us in these certain directions that are going to lead to bad ends, basically. Since if all of our choices are going to be driven and motivated by our ideals, and our actions will take place within certain settings, then things will remain the same and out of our control, unless we make a shift in our perspective or setting. And as Master Higuchi himself remarks to the protagonist in one chapter, that by relying on all of his other possibilities to make himself happy, that's sort of like the root of his misfortune and his unhappiness, that he's feeling distressed by the way his life has turned out because he's always trying to think about how it could have been rather than how it actually is and how he can find happiness within his current life. As maybe evident by now, this book features some rather unique characters and scenarios that give the story a very unique flavor, even if the kind of university story of like a coming of age varsity setting is fairly familiar from other books. Balestieri's translation is very well done, blending the kind of bizarre and mundane dialogue with colorful, verbose, and at times vulgar turns of phrase that are peppered throughout the book. So if you like a lot of wordplay and very like kind of snappy dialogue, Balasiri did a very, very good job of rendering it to English. And very much doesn't feel like it's been like translated from another language. It very much feels like it has that original quality to it. Because sometimes when you get this kind of unique language and dialogue, when you translate into English, it can feel like a little off or like it's been too mechanically translated. There's none of that at all in this book. It's very, very well done. So if you like books with vibrant and playful dialogue, a cast of unique and eccentric characters, 
or like a story that plays with the idea of like multiverses or alternate timelines in a more real world as opposed to a science fiction kind of setting, then you may also like the Tatami Galaxy by Tomihiko Morimi, translated by Emily Balestieri. Thank you, Mark. That does that sound fun. How's the adaptation to anime? Is it good? Is it a good entry for people? I think so, yeah. Was, the anime was done by a famous director, Masaki Yuasa, who's become very well known within sort of like anime circles as being like one of the top kind of directors in TV and movies. So he's done a couple of uh, Morimis. He also did a movie adaptation of his Night is Short, Walk on Girl. So that's also a good entry point for his work, I think. Cool. We'll have to go check that out. Thank you. All right. Uh, last but not least, Sadie, which award are we looking at today? All right. So as I mentioned, I I don't tend to, to look into awards all that much. I don't tend to put a lot of weight onto awards. So I'm actually going to be talking a bit about two different awards because uh, the book that I'm talking about today was nominated for both of them, but it did not win. It was shortlisted um, for both of them, but it did not win. Um, so the first award is the Manitoba Young Reader's Choice Award. So it's probably not a big surprise that I'm going to be talking about a young adult book today and the awards that I'm going to be talking about. One of them is focused on young adult books. The other one has a category for children's and young adult works. So the Manitoba Young Reader's Choice Award, it was started in 1990, and it is based in Manitoba, but the committee considers any Canadian novel that has been written in English for the previous year with an audience that is intended for ages 10 to 14 years old. So even though they're based in Manitoba, they are looking at all Canadian young adult fiction that fits that category. The cool thing about this award is that it is voted on by students, by youth in Manitoba. So anybody who has read, I think it is at least three of the titles on uh, the list has the ability to vote. And they have pamphlets sent out to all of the schools in, in the province so that everybody can see which books are nominated and have the opportunity to, to read the books and to vote for them. The other award that this book was nominated for was the Crime Writers of Canada Award of Excellence in 2021. And the Crime Writers of Canada, they look also at Canadian fiction, but they look at across multiple different parts of Canadian crime writing. So they have a category for just best crime novel of the year, best debut crime novel of the year, best crime novella. And then they also have many, many others, but uh, they do have a category for best children's and young adult crime novel of the year. So the book that I'm talking about, I read a couple of years ago and have actually been waiting for an opportunity to talk about it on this podcast. So this did work out. And I'm cheating just a tiny little bit because it did, in fact, win a Lambda Award in uh, 2021, I believe. Um, it won the Lambda Award for young adult and children's fiction. And if you're not familiar, the Lambda Award or the Lammies celebrate LGBTQ writing. Um, so they have a variety of uh, different categories as well, all focused on LGBTQ authors and topics. The book that I'm talking about is called I Hope You're Listening, and it's by Tom Ryan. And this novel revolves around Delia D. Skinner. Now, for the last 10 years, D. has been known in her small town as the girl who wasn't taken. When Dee was seven years old, her and her best friend Sibby were out playing in the forest behind their houses, and Sibby was kidnapped. Dee was not. Dee does not know what happened. She has not seen enough or heard enough to provide any useful information 
in finding Sibby. Now, 10 years later, Sibby has still never been found, and Dee lives with the guilt that she did not do enough that day to rescue her best friend. And she goes on with her life as as best as she can. People in the town know her. Her parents chose not to move away from the town like Sibby's family did. Uh, They left their house, but they have continued living in the same town. So everybody knows her story. Everybody knows what happened. And everybody knows that she was the girl who wasn't taken. Dee decides that to help absolve her guilt a little bit, she's going to start a podcast. So every night, Dee is the host of the podcast Radio Silent, and she is an anonymous host. She masks her voice, so nobody knows who she is, and she is the host of the podcast Radio Silent. It is a true crime podcast, and every night, Dee helps to solve missing persons cases. This is the way that Dee has chosen to help her feel like she is doing something. She might not be able to find Sibby, but she can at least help other people find their loved ones. So Dee got started on this podcast one night. She was looking at the internet and she saw a missing persons case and she decided to talk about it on this podcast. And then one day she got an anonymous clue sent to her about this case. She forwarded the clue to the police. With the help of that clue, they were able to find the missing person. From there, Dee has grown her podcast and she has grown her followers. So it's not just her doing the searching now. She has an entire community. They're called the Laptop Detectives. And every every week, Dee presents a case. She presents the clues that she has, the information that she has. And her group of detectives go out and they find information and they search for clues. And with their help, they're able to find these missing people. This is the way that Dee has chosen to deal with her guilt. Dee has decided that she's not going to tell anyone who she is on this podcast, not even her parents. Nobody else in the community knows that it is her that is hosting this podcast. So she continues going on like this until one day, a young girl in her town is kidnapped. Dee realizes that this kidnapping might have something to do with Sibby. Dee decides with the urging of her best friend, Burke, to take on the case of Layla, who has been kidnapped. Now, because Layla has been kidnapped, this brings a lot of media attention to their town. And along with that media attention comes a journalist who is very, very interested in Dee and her podcast. This journalist decides that she is going to figure out who this host, the seeker, actually is putting a lot of pressure on Dee, uh, shining a bright light on Dee. Now, Dee continues to search for Layla, and when she finally is found, she is found in Dee's old house. Knowing that this means that there is some connection to what happened to Dee, what happened to Sibby years ago, Dee knows that she can't just let this drop. So she continues on her search, and as she searches, she starts finding clues that might lead her to what happened to Sibby. This is a very fast-paced novel. It balances really well, though, the high stakes of looking for a missing person, the emotions that are going on for Dee as she's trying to deal with being the person that wasn't taken, with trying to deal with finding Sibby, the hope that she feels that maybe Sibby is still okay. But it also has 
her life as a teenager. It has her life in high school, her life meeting a new neighbor who very quickly learns exactly who Dee is in relation to her podcast. The romance that starts up between her and this neighbor, Sarah, the way that Sarah helps her on her search for Sibby and helps her solve the mysteries that she's working on. As I said, it was won an award. So I I agree with the Lammies that it definitely deserved to win an award. Um, the relationship between Sarah and Dee is a really great relationship because it's it's not the highlight of the story. It's not a story about somebody coming out. It's not a story about someone kind of grappling with their sexuality and with their queerness. It's just an aspect of Dee that, that she's very comfortable with. She doesn't have to talk about it. She doesn't have to bring it to the forefront. And so it just lets her kind of explore her relationship with Sarah and kind of see that budding romance come between them as well as the friendship that forms between them and between her and Burke is is a really wonderful part of the story. I think it should have won. I think that it is an excellent crime novel. As I said, like the last, I don't even know, 100 pages maybe, I read so quickly because I could not put it down. The ending, I would say, kind of goes in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect it to. It might be seen by some people as a bit unrealistic and unbelievable. I didn't mind. I think that I I was just kind of there for it and enjoyed the suspense and everything that kind of went along with that. So yeah, I think it should have won. I think that anyone who is looking for a uh, young adult, or even if you're not looking for a young adult, just a mystery thriller, if you liked the book Sadie, if you like kind of that podcast aspect to it, um, this has transcripts from her podcast mixed in with the actual story. I would recommend I Hope You're Listening by Tom Ryan. Thank you, Sadie, for bringing us not one, not two, but three different awards. <laughs> and Canadian. Canadian also. Nicely done. Um, especially, I think, awards that may not be as well-known as some of the other ones that we'll talk about today. So that's great. Thank you for that. All right. Well, there's a lot less arguing than I thought there would be. I think it's because Corinne is not here. wonder if because there's not a lot of crossover between between the books that we have read. So maybe we can't. We can't argue. In- we can't argue as much. Yeah, right. Because like like you said, I think like Fiona mentioned, like very often, like when a nominee like this, like or one, only one or two that you have read. So it's like you can't really argue as much. And like, you know, what I read, you haven't read. And like, so it's just all kind of works. But they because they're all good books or maybe they just pick really good books. Yeah. Anyway, well, whatever way you use the award list, whether it is just to like see what they've got or like, you know, to try out new books, get introduced to new offers, I think there is a place for them. If it gets you reading, then, you know, we love it. Like whatever it is that gets you reading. So yeah, so thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Keep It Fictional and we will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.